Hello, this is Dean Hess, editor of Respiratory Care, along with Sarah Moore, to bring you the May 2013 podcast. We will cover the first 10 papers in this issue in some detail and then say a few words about the remaining papers. Sarah, let's get started. Editor's Choice Paper this month is Effect of Ventilatory Variability on Occurrence of Central Apneas by DeLisle and colleagues. They compared the influence of two ventilation strategies on the occurrence of central apneas. This was a prospective comparative crossover study with 14 unsedated subjects undergoing weaning from mechanical ventilation in a medical ICU. The subjects were ventilated alternately in Neurally Adjusted Ventilatory Assist, or NAVA, and Pressure Support Ventilation, PSV. Ventilatory variability and breathing pattern were evaluated in both modes. Switching from PSV to NAVA did not change mean minute ventilation, tidal volume, or breathing frequency. However, tidal volume variability was significantly greater with NAVA than with PSV. NAVA induced a greater decrease in central apneas compared to PSV from 10.5 with PSV to 0 with NAVA. Central apneas during PSV were detected only during non-rapid eye movement sleep. The authors concluded that NAVA was associated with increased ventilatory variability compared to constant level PSV. With NAVA, the absence of over-assistance during sleep coincided with absence of central apneas, suggesting that load capacity and or neuromechanical coupling were improved by NAVA and that this improvement decreased or abolished central apneas. This is an interesting study that evaluated the relationship between ventilatory variability, over-assistance of ventilator support, and sleep. With NAVA, the absence of over-assistance during sleep coincided with absence of central apneas. Whether or not this suggests a role for NAVA as a ventilator mode, or rather allowed the issue of over-assistance with pressure support to be investigated, remains to be determined. Perhaps a reduction of the level of pressure support or use of a mode with a backup rate would have achieved similar results as NAVA. In her editorial, Moss points out that, in addition to physiologic outcomes, improvements in outcomes such as decreased number of ventilator days and fewer complications of mechanical ventilation may be necessary for widespread adoption of NAVA. Next, we have the paper by Rodriguez et al. Transpulmonary Pressure and Gas Exchange During Decremental PEEP Titration in Pulmonary ARDS Patients. They describe changes in transpulmonary pressure and gas exchange during a decremental PEEP titration maneuver in subjects with pulmonary ARDS. Eleven subjects with early ARDS were included. After a recruitment maneuver, subjects were ventilated in volume-controlled ventilation and PEEP was decreased from 30 to 0 centimeters of water by steps of 3 centimeters water. Static airway pressure, esophageal pressure, transpulmonary pressure, the dead space fraction, and PaO2 were recorded at each step. A linear correlation was found between airway pressure and transpulmonary pressure. Expiratory transpulmonary pressure became negative in all subjects at some point as PEEP decreased. 
dead space fraction was significantly higher during ventilation at high compared to low inspiratory transpulmonary pressure values. PaO2 decreased when expiratory transpulmonary pressure became negative. The authors concluded that PEEP selection based on transpulmonary pressure and dead space fraction in ARDS may help to identify the level of PEEP to avoid alveolar overdistension and collapse. Selection of PEEP associated with the best compliance of the respiratory system during decremental PEEP titration can be used for the treatment of patients with ARDS. The results of the study by Rodriguez et al. suggest that PEEP selection based on measurements of transpulmonary pressure and dead space may also be useful for decremental PEEP titration. In his editorial, Pirano comments that, although decremental PEEP titration is attractive, questions remain about whether or not this approach improves outcomes. It is currently unknown whether any approach to PEEP selection is superior to others. A preliminary evaluation of the effectiveness of the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation Mentoring Program for Respiratory Care is by Richards and colleagues. They determined whether their mentoring program achieved the short-term goal of increasing CF-specific knowledge among the apprentices who participated in the program. Selected apprentices were each matched with a mentor based on characteristics of CF population, clinical setting, center size, and geographic location of their care centers. Apprentices completed a CF-specific respiratory therapy knowledge self-assessment tool prior to and after a site visit to their mentor's center. Mentors also completed a post-site visit knowledge self-assessment tool regarding their apprentice. 37 apprentices completed a pre- and post-site visit knowledge self-assessment tool. The median pre- and post-site visit scores were 12 and 31, respectively. The mentors' post-site visit scores of their apprentices did not significantly differ from the apprentices' post-site visit scores. The authors concluded that this suggests that the RT mentoring program has achieved its short-term goal of increasing CF-specific knowledge among RTs relatively new to CF care. In 2008, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation launched the Respiratory Therapy Mentoring Program, which pairs a respiratory therapist relatively new to CF care with a highly experienced RT from a similar CF care center. This preliminary evaluation of effectiveness of this program suggests that it is beneficial. Vosco observes that the process described in this paper can be used to support RTs as they transition from novice to experienced professionals. Similar mentoring programs might also be beneficial for other aspects of respiratory care, such as pulmonary rehabilitation and extracorporeal life support, to name a few. Our next paper is Effective Leak in Breathing Pattern on the Accuracy of Tidal Volume Estimation by Commercial Home Ventilators, a bench study by Lujan and colleagues. The objective of this study was to assess the reliability of tidal volume provided by five ventilators in a bench test. Five commercial ventilators from four different manufacturers were tested in pressure support mode with the help of a breathing simulator under different conditions of mechanical respiratory pattern, inflation pressure, and intentional 
leakage. Values provided by the built-in software of each ventilator were compared breath-to-breath -breath with the tidal volume monitored through an external pneumatachograph. All tested ventilators underestimated tidal volume. A direct relationship between leak and underestimation was found in four ventilators, with higher underestimations of the tidal volume when the leakage increased, ranging between about negative 2% to negative 6% and each 10 liters per minute increase in the leakage. A ventilator that included an algorithm that computes the pressure lost through the tube as a function of the flow exiting the ventilator had the minimal effect of leaks on the estimation of tidal volume. In three ventilators, the underestimation was also influenced by mechanical pattern, with a lower underestimation with restrictive pattern and higher with obstructive pattern. The authors concluded that the inclusion of algorithms that calculate the pressure loss as a function of the flow exiting the ventilator in commercial models may increase the reliability of tidal volume estimation. New home ventilators are able to provide clinicians data of interest through built-in software. Monitoring of tidal volume is a key point in the assessment of the efficiency of home mechanical ventilation. This study assessed the reliability of tidal volume provided by several of these ventilators. They all underestimated tidal volume and there was a direct relationship between leak and underestimation in four of the ventilators. The ventilator that included an algorithm related to pressure loss through the circuit had the lowest effect of leaks on the estimation of tidal volume. Extended utilization of non-invasive ventilation for acute respiratory failure and its clinical outcomes is by Gupta and colleagues. They conducted a retrospective study to assess whether the extended use of NIV beyond commonly accepted criteria is associated with worse clinical outcomes. This was a retrospective review of a data set consisting of patients admitted with respiratory failure and treated with NIV. Based on guidelines, the authors grouped patients on whether they had indications and or contraindications for NIV. Among the group of subjects with indications for NIV, the rate of intubation was 28% for those with no contraindication and 56% in those with it. In the group of subjects with no indication for NIV, the presence of contraindications was associated with higher rate of intubation, compared with those without contraindications, 70% versus 17%. The authors concluded that this study supports the extended utilization of NIV for subjects without contraindications and for subjects with indications despite the presence or absence of contraindications. NIV has increasingly been used for the treatment of acute respiratory failure. Despite recommendations supporting its utilization in a limited group of patients, NIV is frequently used as a first-line treatment beyond what is commonly supported in the literature. Gupta et al. performed a retrospective review of patients with respiratory failure treated with NIV to determine whether extended use of NIV is associated with worse clinical outcomes. In the group of subjects with no indication for NIV, the presence of contraindications was associated with a higher rate of intubation. Their results support the extended utilization of NIV for subjects without contraindications and those with indications despite contraindications. However, caution is urged when using NIV outside of established evidence.
next paper is by Tzu, and its title is Evaluation of Interpretation Strategies in Substantial Bronchodilator Response in Pediatric Patients with Normal Baseline Spirometry. The study compares the use of lower limit of normal against percent of predicted in the interpretation of spirometry. The authors also investigate the occurrence of a substantial bronchodilator response for patients who received post-bronchodilator spirometry. Spirometric tests performed in a pediatric clinic were retrospectively reviewed. Abnormal spirometry was defined as a low FEV1 or low FEV1 to FVC ratio, indicating evidence of airway obstruction. Of 242 tests, 212 were normal, and 30 abnormal tests were reported using the lower limit of normal interpretation strategy. Using the percent of predicted interpretation strategy, there was a significant difference in the number of normal and abnormal tests when compared to the lower limit of normal. No significant difference between the lower limit of normal versus percent of predicted interpretation strategies was noted in the number of baseline tests, normal or abnormal, that demonstrated a substantial response to bronchodilator. Of the subjects with normal baseline spirometry, 10% using percent of predicted and 12% using lower limit of normal had a substantial bronchodilator response. An abnormal baseline spirometry was more likely to have had a substantial response to bronchodilator compared to normal baseline spirometry. The authors concluded that using lower limit of normal for interpretation is more likely to report a test as normal. Although a substantial bronchodilator response was more likely to occur following abnormal baseline spirometry, about 10% of subjects with normal baseline spirometry showed a substantial bronchodilator response. Controversy exists regarding the best method to interpret pediatric spirometry. There is also controversy related to the benefit of performing post-bronchodilator spirometry after normal baseline spirometry. The authors of this study evaluated interpretation strategies and bronchodilator response in pediatric patients with normal baseline spirometry. Compared to the percent of predicted interpretation strategy, lower limit of normal was more likely to report a test as normal. Interestingly, about 1 in 10 subjects with normal baseline spirometry showed a substantial bronchodilator response. A computer-aided audit system for respiratory therapy consult evaluations, description of a method and early results, is by Kester and Stoller. Growth in the number of respiratory therapists and the need to audit more frequently prompted development of a new computer-aided audit system. The number and results of audits using the old and new systems were compared. In contrast to the original, live system using a patient visit by the auditor, the new system involves completion of a respiratory therapy care plan using patient information in the electronic medical record, both by the respiratory therapist generating the care plan and the auditor. Completing audits in the new system also uses an electronic respiratory therapy management system. The degree of concordance between the audited RT care plans and the gold standard care plans using the old and new audit systems was similar. Use of the new system was associated with an almost doubling of the rate of audits. The authors concluded that the new computer-aided audit system increased capacity to audit more RT-guided consults while preserving accuracy as an audit tool. Use of RT-guided protocols enhances allocation of respiratory care. 
Optimal protocol use requires a system for auditing respiratory care plans to assure adherence to protocols and expertise of the RTs. It is assuring to note that Kester and Stoller found that there were similar degrees of concordance between the audited care plans and the gold standard care plans using the old and new audit systems. Next paper is Influence of Humidification on Comfort During Non-Invasive Ventilation with a Helmet by Ueta et al. The objective of this study was to evaluate optimal humidifier water temperature when using a helmet for non-invasive ventilation. 28 healthy individuals underwent 8 cm of water CPAP ventilation with FiO2 of 0.21 and 0.5. Each was sequentially tested using the helmet without humidification at ambient temperature, with humidification with unheated chamber water, and with humidification with the chamber water at 31 degrees Celsius, 34 degrees Celsius, and 37 degrees Celsius. At each setting, after a 20-minute stabilization period, measurements were taken. Comfort level at each setting was evaluated using a visual analog scale rated from least comfortable to most comfortable. Comfort scores significantly decreased as the humidification chamber water temperature increased. Regardless of the FiO2, significantly highest comfort scores were obtained when humidification water, with and without active humidification, was at ambient temperature. Unacceptable absolute humidity was obtained only without humidification at room temperature when FiO2 was 0.5. The authors concluded that, for patient comfort and mucosal humidification using a helmet, the most desirable conditions are likely to be obtained by humidifying without heating. Whether or not humidification should be used during NIV remains controversial. These authors evaluated the influence of humidification on comfort with a helmet. Interestingly, for patient comfort and humidification during CPAP using a helmet, the authors found that the most comfortable conditions were obtained by leaving the water in the humidifier chamber at room temperature. Although this study looked specifically at the helmet, the data might also have implications for other interfaces. Respiratory therapy reduces postoperative atelectasis in children undergoing lung resection is by Kaminsky and colleagues. This was a retrospective and prospective interventional description and quantitative study. The authors evaluated 123 pediatric subjects undergoing lung resection. 52 children were prospectively submitted to a standardized physiotherapy protocol that included a mask with a positive expiratory pressure of 10 centimeters water, expiratory rig gauge compression, coughing, lifting the upper limbs, and ambulation starting within the first four hours after surgery and continuing three times each day. A historical control group of 71 subjects received physiotherapeutic techniques without specific standardization and with variability in the start day and number of days attended. The group that received a standardized protocol of physiotherapy had fewer instances of atelectasis than the control group. 
subjects in the control group were more likely than those in the intervention group to require fiber-optic bronchoscopy for bronchiotoilet. There was no difference in the time of drainage or hospital stay between the groups. The authors concluded that implementation of a standardized physiotherapeutic protocol after lung resection in children decreases atelectasis, but does not reduce the time of chest tube removal or the duration of hospital stay. The effectiveness of the techniques used in the postoperative physiotherapy in children undergoing lung resection have not been well described. Kaminsky and colleagues found that a standardized protocol decreased atelectasis but did not reduce the time to chest tube removal or the duration of hospital stay. Although this study was conducted using physiotherapists in Brazil, similar results might occur using respiratory therapists in North America. Finally, we have the paper, Prediction of Optimal CPAP Pressure and Validation of an Equation for Asian Patients with Obstructive Sleep Apnea by Lee et al. The purpose of this study was to develop an equation for optimal CPAP based on data from Asian patients and to compare this new formula with Hofstein's formula. The authors retrospectively reviewed the records of 356 Korean subjects with obstructive sleep apnea who had undergone successful CPAP titration and randomly divided them into two groups with 178 subjects per group. In group 1, they used stepwise multiple linear regression analysis to develop a predictive equation for optimal CPAP. They then compared the author's equation with Hofstein's equation in group 2. The author's equation accounted for 39% of the total variance. Proportions of optimal estimation of CPAP pressure were 39% and 37% in their equation and Hofstein's, respectively. Hofstein's formula significantly underestimated CPAP compared with the author's formula. The authors conclude that, although their equation was somewhat better to predict optimal CPAP level in Asian subjects than Hofstein's equation, the CPAP prediction equation did not accurately predict the prescribed CPAP level. Hofstein's formula is the most widely used equation to predict optimal CPAP pressure in patients with obstructive sleep apnea, but it is based on data from white subjects. Lee et al. found that, although their equation better predicted optimal CPAP level in Asian subjects, its usefulness was limited because it did not accurately predict the prescribed CPAP level. Prognostic models of COPD do not include sufficient indicators of right ventricular function to enable accurate assessment of changes in RV function over time. The aim of the study by Tanaka and colleagues was to test the hypothesis that it would be useful to include non-invasive markers of RV function in the routine assessment and prognostic models of early stage COPD with or without pulmonary hypertension. Their results support the assessment of RV function in the evaluation of physical status in patients with COPD. The study of Fu et al. was designed to define microscopic structural features of lung injury following high-frequency oscillatory ventilation in a high lung volume strategy in newborn piglets with acute lung injury. 
HFOV with high lung volume strategy, improved oxygenation, and reduced pulmonary polymorphonuclear leukocyte infiltration, hemorrhage, alveolar edema, and hilum membrane formation. Kapoor et al. used data from the cardiovascular health study to estimate the association of body mass index and SpO2. They found a narrow distribution of SpO2 values in a community-based sample of ambulatory elderly. Obesity was a strong independent contributor to a low SpO2 with effects comparable to or greater than other factors clinically associated with lower SpO2. The aim of the study by Zell and colleagues was to analyze complications and survival after percutaneous endoscopic gastrostomy tube placement performed with NIV. Peg tube insertion was associated with minimal peri-procedure and post-procedure complications, which was attributed to the systematic use of procedural NIV in ALS subjects. Because the reliability of P.1 as an index of respiratory motor output has not been sufficiently investigated, Kara et al. examined the reliability of P.1 in healthy subjects. The 95% confidence interval indicated that it is necessary to determine the average value of three or more measurements and the minimum of four repeat measurements to obtain valid results. Gunker et al. assessed whether the 6-minute walk distance or the percent predicted 6-minute walk distance is a better reflection of the respiratory function of patients using home NIV due to chronic hypercapnic respiratory failure. The percent of predicted 6-minute walk distance was better correlated with respiratory function than the actual 6-minute walk distance for subjects using home NIV due to chronic hypercapnic respiratory failure with COPD, obesity hypoventilation syndrome, kyphoscoliosis, and parenchymal lung disease. This month, we publish a systematic review on anxiety disorders in patients with COPD, obesity, and asthma, and respiratory care year in review. Our case reports deal with massive intractable hemoptysis due to idiopathic granulomatous pulmonary veno-occlusive disease, and interstitial pulmonary fibrosis and progressive massive fibrosis related to smoking methamphetamine with talc as a filler. Our teaching case is related to pulmonary mucormycosis. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues. Thank you.